Costs to originate keep rising, even with more technology in the industry. The problem is the core platform. A new LOS can re-architect the process around data, not humans moving paper files. Vesta has built this LOS, and you can learn more at Vesta.com. Welcome, everyone. My guest today is Chris Clow, editor of Reverse Mortgage Daily, to talk about state affordable housing initiatives in Washington and Minnesota, which range from down payment assistance programs to changing single-family zoning laws. Hi, I'm McKenna Clay, Events and Program Specialist here at HW Media, and I wanted to invite you to our upcoming event this summer. A theme we've heard from housing leaders this year is the importance of relationships to not only survive, but be strategic in 2023. And that's why we decided to invite the top C-suite executives and leaders in mortgage to join us at Gathering of Eagles in Austin, Texas from June 18th until 21st. Now, Gathering of Eagles has historically been exclusive to the nation's most elite brokerage, association and team leaders, and C-suite leaders. But for the first time this year, we're opening up the audience to include execs from mortgage, title, and insurance so that you can connect and build vital partnerships for your business. If you want to learn more, visit the events page on realtrends.com and you can get registered today to come hang out with us in Austin. Chris, welcome back to the podcast. Always appreciate the chance to join you, Sarah. Thank you. Oh, I love having you on. We have so much to talk about. You do a lot of our policy coverage. And so, wow, we have had lots going on there. But one of the things I wanted to talk about was the fact that it's not just federal policy. We're seeing a lot of states and different municipalities really trying to solve some of the housing affordability challenges that we see and just, you know, the fact that there's not enough housing. So let's talk first about the Minnesota uh, legislature, which approved a $1 billion affordable housing bill. What, what did you see there? Yeah, so uh, local media called this the biggest investment that the state has ever made in housing at large. Uh, Minnesota right now has a benefit of uh, maintaining a budget surplus. So they're looking at ways that they can uh, perhaps cr- make some additional investments in some of the priorities. Uh, and housing is at the top of the list in many states, as we'll talk about again a little bit uh, uh, shortly. But um, it's a sweeping new bill. It totals $1 billion and is designed to address issues related to affordable housing access and down payment assistance for first-time home buyers. And um, so $150 million of the bill is being devoted to down payment assistance. Uh, And advocates who spoke to uh, the Minnesota Star Tribune estimated that that has the potential to create 5,000 new homeowners in Minnesota. But people who are seeking that kind of assistance have to go through an eligibility process. Eligible beneficiaries have to verify that they have a parent who has never owned a home or lost a home through foreclosure. Uh, $45 million of the bill is going to a homelessness prevention program. And the bill overall is going to be funded by a quarter cent sales tax increase in the Twin Cities metro area. Uh, and they're applying hundreds of millions of dollars from that state surplus to some of the bill's programs. Um, so, and, and current projections based on some of the data that I reviewed uh, estimate that the tax over the next two years is supposed to generate $353 million. 
And uh, that is $1 for every $400 of taxable purchases. So it's going to be, uh, even though like it's a relatively modest uh, tax increase, I think just in terms of a quarter of a cent, um, that's, that's a pretty sizable chunk of change that they're going to be using to, to funnel into housing programs. Um, a lot of it is going to be sourced from that budget surplus, and that has uh, caused certain uh, Republican lawmakers within the state to call foul on it. They don't believe that uh, in increasing taxes and drawing uh, from the budget is a good idea while there's a surplus. Uh, Republican lawmakers contend that a, a lot of the issues that are related to housing affordability actually stem from overregulation and feel that this bill does nothing to address that. But it's been approved by both houses of the legislature and Governor Tim Waltz is expected to sign it. You know, from my perspective, it's like kudos to them for doing something, right? I mean, it's easy to talk about oh, affordability. I um, but I mean, they're actually doing something. I had Katrina Jones um, from Fannie Mae on the podcast a couple of days ago, and we were talking exactly about this down payment assistance and the fact that that is the key for getting people into homes. I mean, y- you already have, you know, homes that uh, the home prices have not dropped like people thought. Um, and then you have higher mortgage rates than say we had this time last year and, and the couple years before that. So that down payment assistance, if you could, if that could get 5,000 people, new homeowners, that seems like a sizable, a sizable difference. Yeah. And I think housing advocates within the state are also taking that perspective. And actually some of the measures within the bill are not going far enough for some of the ambitions that, uh, that state lawmakers uh, were had for it. Um, but at the same time, you know, you're right. A a billion dollars more than the state has ever spent on housing. Uh, and, um, only the money from the Metro sales tax and another $50 million from the state's general fund is also going to be going to, uh, vouchers for aiding, uh, renters. So they're really trying to attack a lot of different housing issues from several different angles. And I know that there is criticism and in some cases, viable criticism that you're not going to be able to solve these problems just by throwing money at them. But the fact that they're making an investment of this size in, uh, in their housing worries, many of which are applicable to states across the country. Uh, yeah, I think housing advocates certainly have a reason to, uh, to, to be optimistic about the ways that this additional money can be applied to those problems. I think one thing that really uh, caught my eye on this is the fact that um, if you want to qualify for that down payment assistance, you have to verify that you um, that you that your parents have never owned a home or lost one through foreclosure, which reminds me of what uh, it was all the rage when Biden, the Biden administration first got into office. They were talking about this on a federal level, on a national level. And, you know, you had, you had, several things that were uh, working against that. One of it was like, this would incentivize people at exactly the wrong moment uh, when we already had a a lack of housing. And you could say um, in, in this, in this case, if you have 5,000 new homeowners, are you going to have any houses for them to buy? It is one, Mm -hmm. one obstacle, correct? Yeah. Well, and I mean, how many times have you heard speeches from leaders at the Department of Housing and Urban Development or even elsewhere in the government talk about how if you want to create 
intergenerational wealth that really begins with home ownership. And what Minnesota is trying to do is at least what it looks like to, to me when I look at the language of the bill and some of the, the goals that it has is that it's trying to create not only first time home buyers, but first generation home buyers. And that seems to be a pretty big dividing line in, in sort of uh, encompassing what the ambitions of the legislation uh, really do entail. So I think it's an interesting approach. And if people subscribe to the notion that intergenerational wealth is created by home ownership, then the idea of creating as many as 5,000 new first generation home buyers could potentially make a big difference uh, well into the future for people. Um, you know, an, another state, and I love I love all those points you make, another state is Washington, which, you know, with Seattle has been one of the most unaffordable metros, um, you know, in the country for years. It's, uh, you know, it's your home state. Um, and so you're very familiar with these issues, but you know, the, uh, Washington governor has just signed a series of bills to really address housing issues, but they're kind of going at it uh, from a different perspective. So tell me, tell me what those bills are looking at. Sure. Well, if you drive around here anywhere north of Seattle, I mean, it's pretty easy to see that while there has been like a spur of construction of five over one apartment buildings, there's a lot of land across the state that only ha- that is only zoned for single family homes. So that's one of the ways that legislators have uh, tried to attack issues, particularly related to supply, because we have a rather stringent supply issue and, a su- and supply constraints uh, in the Pacific Northwest. So the the new one of the new bills that Governor Jay Inslee just signed this week basically did away with single family zoning. He's trying to encourage uh, construction of more multifamily housing, more affordable housing to try and, and get more people uh, under a roof. And um, opponents uh, generally characterize uh, such a measure, and we've seen it in other states too. I think we've seen it in New York and in Florida, that it would transform neighborhoods. But at the same time, you know, you do have a supply problem that absolutely needs to be addressed. If you watch, if someone, you know, is from here or takes a trip up here and turns on the local news, there's a sizable portion of news coverage dedicated particularly to the homelessness problem that that's in Seattle. And um, so there is some funding that is going to try and, and address and alleviate uh, homelessness. But there was also an interesting bill uh, House Bill 1474 intended to help people who were affected by racist housing covenants designed to keep ethnic and religious minorities out of certain neighborhoods, and, and as well as assist their descendants with down payments and closing costs. And that was actually a bill that I think got coverage in the Washington Post, which we don't normally see very often in terms of Washington state legislation. But um, the legislature and, and the, the majorities in the legislature are basically talking about going as big as they possibly can. Governor Inslee just announced that he is not going to be running for re-election. So that might play into it as well. Uh, the, there's a you know a wide open uh, seat for politicians on either side to try and, uh, and vie for. But, uh, you know, climate uh, policy has been a big focus of Governor Inslee's, but housing has really kind of taken pole position recently just because of the, the supply constraints and the homelessness problems that have pervaded not just Seattle, but uh, areas up and down the I-5 corridor within Washington state. So 
it was uh it was pretty surprising to see that so many bills were signed at one time, but at the same time as well, there are advocates who do not believe that these bills went far enough. There was a a person named Michelle Thomas, who's a director director of policy and advocacy for the Washington Low Income Housing Alliance. Uh, she told the Seattle Times that the legislator quote, had opportunities to do something about the massively unaffordable rents that are driving housing insecurity for many people across the state. And she said that the legislature completely turned their back on that. So while rent stabilization uh, is a priority, uh, it's going to have to wait for, for future legislation. But at the same time, Governor Inslee and a lot of other Washington legislators are um, kind of patting themselves on the back for going as big as they could this time. Well, and I feel like no matter what you do, there are going to be people who are like, you didn't do enough. And it's like, granted, I mean, we we have a big housing affordability problem across the country. I know that Seattle specifically does, but something is good. And to your point, I mean, these are some pretty significant bills. The one that, that is, uh, lifts the zoning restrictions for single family, you know, they hope that that, that gets more what we call middle housing, right? Which is multifamily properties, but, you know, maybe in a, in a neighborhood that's traditionally single family. So it doesn't have to be like on the outskirts. It's like, it's infill, like in this area. Now we're going to, we're going to have some, um, you know, mixed use. We're going to have multifamily properties. We're going to have ADUs. Um, and that's just so important because again, when you push construction out to, out to the fringes, you're, you're also creating other problems as well. Yeah. And I think ADUs are a big component of that too, because the legislation is designed to ease the ability for people to apply and ultimately construct ADUs on their properties. I think I've said on this show before, you know, my mom lives in an ADU in Washington state. Uh, it was not an easy process to go through the, uh, the getting the proper permits and applications to facilitate the construction of where she lives now. But uh, I think I wrote a story for Housing Wire one or two months ago that described how ADU construction is getting uh, massively more popular on the West Coast. You know, between Oregon, Washington, and California, you're seeing a, a notable spike in ADU permits and in ADU construction. And um, especially, I think that kind of corresponds a little bit with some of the work that I, I do on RMD and some of what I see in terms of senior housing, just because there are seniors who are getting closer to retirement who maybe don't have a clear path to make ends meet, whether it's because, you know, they're enduring issues stemming from inflation or market difficulties or hits to their retirement accounts. Uh, you know, seniors just don't, a lot of seniors just don't have enough money to make ends meet. So if a relative comes to them and says, Hey, come live on my property, we'll build you an ADU and, and you'll be a stone's throw away. And if you need anything, then you can just walk across the yard. Then, uh, you know, that can make a, a big difference for people. And I think that that's going to have an outsize impact on older residents, but it'll be really interesting to see, you know, in 10 or 15 years, how ADUs that were maybe initially constructed for the purpose of housing an older relative or family member, um, you know, how those are used in the future. Are they going to be converted into rental spaces or, you know, are, are more kids maybe going to stay at home for longer if they have a greater degree of independence? It's going to be really interesting to see how that unfolds. It really is. I traveled to California quite a bit um, to see my daughter as well as, you know, do industry events. But when I see my daughter, I'm usually staying at Airbnb. And um, many times those are ADUs in someone's sure. backyard. 
sometimes it's the main house and the family's living in the ADU, right? And they're renting out the, the, the main house. So you do see that like, you know, people are finding income through that and, and that helps too. Yeah, absolutely. And that's actually something that uh, that was recently incorporated into the reverse mortgage program. Uh, now uh, you, uh, it's going to be possible to consider rental income in a HECM application. And that was a relatively recent uh, mortgagee letter that was handed down by FHA. So that's just proof, I think, that ADUs are becoming an increasingly important part of the American housing ecosystem. And it has applications you know, for, for property owners who might be looking to establish a separate, uh, space for, for rental income of some kind, or for, uh, older folks who are maybe looking to stay close to home while remain retaining some semblance of independence or, you know, potentially kids like college age kids who, uh, maybe they, they don't want or need to, to spread their wings and fly away, so to speak, and they can stay a little closer to home. It's a really interesting new dynamic that's active in the American housing space. And it'll be very fascinating to see how it unfolds. So I love this. So you are editor of Reverse Mortgage Daily, but you also write uh, on policy issues and a whole lot of issues for housing wire. We have what we call a global newsroom, but you have honed your, you know, honed your craft, made a lot of your career in the reverse space. So you know a lot about that. And, you know, this is a perfect segue into um, some of the other stories you've been writing on Reverse Mortgage Daily. And one of them is that HUD announced uh, grants for low-income seniors to age in place. And you really make the point in in that story that this is this is really a HUD priority, uh, is to help seniors stay where they are. Um, you know, the it makes all the sense in the world to us when we think about it, but tell us a little bit about that program. Sure. So this is a, actually a new program is dispersing around $15 million in grants to help with home uh, health and safety repairs. So that basically means that they're home renovations. There was, a, there was another round of funding that I think was announced last year where HUD Secretary Marsha Fudge actually went to a home that was a beneficiary of a previous round of funding to describe some of the changes. And it's actually something that the reverse mortgage industry has been banging the drum on for a while. The idea of trying to renovate homes or to right size into homes that are more appropriate to age in place within. So that could mean, you know, if, if a home has stairs leading up to it, ditching the stairs and, and putting a ramp in their place. If a home is multi-story, maybe looking into some sort of elevator system that makes it easier for a senior to, to get up and down. Uh, widening doorways to accommodate wheelchairs, uh, using non-slip mats in bathrooms and adding grab bars, uh, both internally and externally to the home. These grants are really designed to modify a home to enable particularly low-income older people to remain in their homes through low co- what the what HUD calls low cost, low barrier, high impact home modifications to reduce older adults' risk of falling, improve general safety, increase accessibility, and improve the, their functional abilities in their home. We've seen some reverse mortgage companies engage in partnerships with with other firms that are specifically designed to try and facilitate some of these kinds of modifications. But the fact that HUD is recognizing that this is potentially a really critical path to allow more seniors to age in place in their homes 
really shows that uh, they're taking aging in place seriously. You know, there's there's times where as the editor of RMD, I might get a little frustrated that maybe they're not paying as much attention to issues related to aging and to, to our senior population as they probably could. But when they do act, I have to admit, I mean, they, they do act uh, in, in a pretty sizable fashion. So we've seen some uh, funding rounds in this kind of area in the past. Last summer, uh, Secretary Fudge and other HUD officials announced another $15 million round of grants that were designed to address senior livability issues and put it in context with a lot of um, data. By 2040, it's estimated that 20% of the population will be over 65 years old. I mean, that's a that's a big shift and potentially a transformative shift in the way that our society looks. Uh, we, we even see that in other countries, you know, like in, in Japan, for instance, the older share of the population is becoming a much, much larger component of that society. And there aren't enough young people coming up to uh, sort of replace the people who are aging out of, of the workforce. So what does that do to a society? I think these are absolutely questions worth asking and finding additional ways to try and, uh, and, and allow more seniors to age comfortably and safely within their homes could be a critical part of that. No, I totally agree. I, I agree with you. And I think that, you know, what we know is that aging in place is usually uh, much less expensive yes. for the government. If, if, if they're helping, you know, low income uh, seniors, it's much less expensive to keep them where they are, modify their house, even send in um, people to help with house cleaning, stuff like that. I, I um, in a past life, I was part owner of a home health agency. And, and one of the things we did as unskilled labor, we, is we had people go out, um, under a local program. It was actually a, a county program that sent people to clean houses or, um, do grocery shopping, whatever, um, to keep seniors in place, right? Because it, even doing that, even having someone go out and do their laundry and clean their house and get them groceries so much cheaper. Than, than having them in, in a care facility. And most people want to stay in their homes. They don't want to go in a care facility. So it's it's, it's a win-win. Absolutely. And, and home health care, you know, is a sizable expense. You know, as, uh, right now, I, as, as a parent, I'm encountering the costs associated with daycare, which are also sizable. But like home health care costs are, are pretty sizable uh, costs, you know, long-term care expenses. And then you throw, you know, medications on top of that. And then, you know, potential issues with the the living space itself. I mean, it, these things really add up. And the fact that you have these agencies and individual lawmakers, as well as people in the private sector, recognizing that this has the potential to be transformative for our society, uh, it, it gives me hope that it's going to be properly addressed. There's a lot of headwinds in a lot of areas, of course, but uh, the idea of recognizing that uh, facilitating more aging in place options could be a really uh, could provide a really big financial benefit to people who are getting older, particularly those who are financially disadvantaged. Yeah, that that's a that, that's that's a, a good possible step in the right direction. It's it's just funny because you know everyone's going to get older. So yeah. Yeah. what we do for people, uh, you know you know, maybe we're not there yet, but we will all be there. So I think that's one of the ironies of when we have, um, you know, any policies aimed at seniors is, you know, right now it might be your grandparents or your parents, but someday it's going to be you, right? So 
always interesting to me to see see how we're treating that. Um, I did think there was one story that you had um, recently um, about senior held home equity had had fallen for the first time in a decade. I think there's a caveat to that where it was like it you know it wasn't a huge drop. But tell me about that story. Yeah, so this is a, a quarterly report that is released by the National Reverse Mortgage Lenders Association uh, in, uh, in, in a sort of a combined effort with a data analytics firm called RiskSpan. And it's called the Reverse Mortgage Market Index. It measures on a quarterly basis the levels of senior-held home equity uh, for people age 65 and older. And for the first time since, I believe, 2011 – the uh, reverse mortgage market index actually dropped. Now, the drop was modest and it dropped to $12.39 trillion. That is still like c- compared with the last time that the RMMI dropped in 2011, where the figure was like around th- a little over $3 trillion, you can see the, the sizable change that has taken place in the intervening decade relating to uh, the home values of seniors. So the drop is modest and um, it was uh, resulted, at least it, it was said by the firms in their report when they released the information that it resulted from an increase of $30 billion in senior home debt, while home values themselves remained relatively unchanged due to, to, due to the continued cooling of the housing market. So it's not even that home values dropped materially. It's just that expenses related to home ownership went up collectively for the senior cohort. Um, but you know you can't deny that uh, that seniors have seen a, a huge amount of growth in the values of their homes over the past ten years, and that provides a potential path for for them to tap that equity in some way. You know, reverse mortgage is one possible way. There are some alternative options that are not necessarily debt based that that people can look into, and this is really the case that the industry has been making uh, for the, for a very long time is that, you know, home equity levels are rising. Seniors are, uh, sitting on smaller nest eggs for retirement than they have in the past. It might be worth exploring tapping that home equity, but, uh, considering all of the moves that have been taking place in the housing market, particularly over the last year, year and a half, it's not a sizable drop in their collective equity, and it certainly, I don't think, does any damage to the idea that that is a resource that could potentially help a qualifying borrower with a reverse mortgage or some other kind of equity tapping option. Well, obviously, on Re- Reverse Mortgage Daily, you have you are always reporting on um, how it could help, and and one of the things that um, you published this week looked at for baby boomers, um, that that generation is woefully unprepared for retirement, which we've all known, right? But the numbers here are pretty stark where it looked like, um, did it, did it say 58%, according to the Census Bureau, um, you know, 58% don't have any retirement savings. Yeah, 50, 58% of baby boomers. Uh, it's a figure that rises based on age, um, which I thought was was pretty stark, all things considered. And it presents a more serious potential issue when you think about all of the uh, issues that we hear about in the news seemingly every other month about the headwinds that are being faced by the Social Security Trust Fund, which I have also reported about on RMD, because a lot of people 
uh, solely rely on social security benefit payments after they stop working. Uh, and a lot of people have a, an incorrect perception about how much that's actually going to be able to help once they end up retiring from their jobs. Um, there was a statistic in, uh, in the story that since many Americans rely on social security benefits, current benefit payments only cover about half of the average monthly expenses incurred by Americans on average. So an $1,800 a month benefit is dwarfed by oftentimes around $4,000 of monthly expenses. Uh, and that's a figure that has certainly been impacted recently by inflation, which is hit cost of living and everything from housing down to food, you know, the basic necessities that people need to increase their quality of life. Um, but it's just, I, I think it just further illustrates the disconnect that a lot of people have about the concept of retirement. You know, for, for a lot of people, uh, certainly people my age, uh, it's so far away, but I mean, if having a, a, a toddler over the past couple of years has proven anything to me is that time really does fly. So you have to, you have to think about things as much as you possibly can. And this just, th this recent data just emphasizes how much that is the case. Um, this was sourced from a story that appeared in the Hill, and they also cited data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. The share of people older than 75 in the workforce is slated to reach 11% by 2026, and that's up from 5% in 1996. Wow. So, you know, we're not just seeing the trend of, of an older and more aged society in other countries, we're seeing it here. It is developing here. So that just brings up all the other things that we just talked about regarding aging in place, but it also brings up issues related to how you make ends meet in retirement. No, it really does. And I mean, I would say that it feels like, you know, hopefully people can be healthier for longer, but certainly some of those people who are still working at that age is because they have to. It's not just like, oh, I would like to do this and it keeps me sharp or whatever. It's like, oh, I need the money. Well, and that's actually been a, a component of some of the data recently is that life expectancy is getting longer. But, the, you know, as positive as that news generally is for people, it also does come with some associated costs because the way that people were planning for retirement 30 or 40 years ago just does not apply to the way that people plan for retirement. Now you need to plan for longer retirements. You need to try and figure out a way for your resources to outlast you. And that's a difficult uh, thing to try and accomplish for a lot of people. So it just coalesces a lot of the issues related to retirement. And for the reverse mortgage industry in particular, I think it puts into focus that, you know, hey, home equity's here, reverse mortgage companies are here. But another component of that story is that you have seniors who just aren't willing to go there. And some of it might be an aversion to taking on additional debt later in life, which is certainly a viable concern. But there are also not enough sufficient ways to try and explore alternatives. So if you don't have an abundance of alternatives, how long is it going to be before you consider tapping the equity that you've built up in your home? It's it's a valid question. It is a valid question. And Chris, I'm so glad that you're the one who helps us understand these things. You're on the beat. You are always uh, looking at this for us. So I just want to say thanks for coming on and explaining the latest news. Hey, I always appreciate the chance to talk with you. Thank you very much, Sarah.
We have a Slack channel at HW that publishes all of the new registered users for our HW events, like the Gathering of Eagles coming up in June and Housing Wire Annual coming up in October. I was just scrolling through the Gathering of Eagles feed on Slack, and wow, I am blown away with the quality of the attendees. Leaders from Keller Williams, Better Homes and Gardens, EXP, Compass, Hannah Holdings, Remax, and Home Services and incredible ecosystem partners like Zillow, Austin Board of Realtors, New Western Acquisitions, UWM and Bright MLS, just to name a few. If you aren't familiar with GOE, this is our real estate brokerage event for the most elite brokers, teams, MLS execs, and state and local association of realtors leaders. June 18th through 21st in Austin, Texas at the amazing Omni Barton Creek Resort. Visit the events tab on realtrends.com or housingwire.com to register. Thanks for listening to Housing Wire Daily. If you haven't already, we'd love for you to take a minute to rate the show or leave a comment. We'll see you back here on Monday for more news and insight.